Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Investing these days can look and feel like a game, but it's not. Don't play games with your financial future. Before you invest your hard-earned money, always do your research and create a long-term investing plan that meets your financial goals. Learn how at Investor.gov, an unbiased resource for investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I am your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talk Star Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, iHeartRadio, and uh, Simul Radio and Simul TV. Now, if you'd like to find out who's on what station and what time their show airs on the Exxon Broadcast Network, just go to www.xzbn.net. And for the Exxon TV channel, that is channel number 21 on Simul TV, www.simultv.com. My first guest tonight, Exxon Nation, is Ellen Everett Hopman. And uh, she is the author of a number of books and has been a teacher of herbalism since 1983 and Druidism since 1990. She has prevented, uh, presented on Druidism, herbal lore, tree lore, paganism, and magic at conferences, festivals, and events in Northern Ireland, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, and in the United States. Her website is Ellen Everett Hopman.com. And Ellen, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you, uh, how you, where the interest in herbalism and paganism came from. Well, I was born in Austria, mm-hmm. and um, when I was growing up, my mother was very interested in the archaeological digs right. that were going on um, in the Hallstatt area, and um, I basically grew up hearing about the Celts and never thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought everybody grew up that way. And uh, then it wasn't until I was in my 30s, I started getting interested in Celtic music. I heard Celtic music for the first time and fell in love with it, became a Kaylee dancer. And um, I, was, I had an herbal practice in Philadelphia at the time. And one of my clients came to me, and as I was taking her case, she just casually mentioned that she had met a druid, and I had never heard that word before. Mm -hmm. Um, This was in the 80s. It was a long time ago. And as soon as I heard that word, I was immediately interested. That's putting it mildly. It's like (laughs) I just knew that that was something that I needed to look into, and that was before the days of the Internet. You know, it wasn't that easy. And... um, I just started looking for druids, and 
I've kind of been doing that ever since. I mean, I've been a druid mm-hmm. since 1984, I guess, officially. So as a druid, what do you do? What is, uh, what is the difference between being a druid and being a pagan and being a Christian, so to speak? Well, you can be a Christian druid, mm-hmm. or you can be a pagan druid, so it gets a little confusing. <laughs> but the, the druid is basically the, um, well, in ancient times, the druid was part of the intellectual class for the Celts, and um, any Celtic area, Scotland, Ireland, you know, anywhere in Britain, uh, Gaul, which is France, right. Germany, uh, all those areas, Austria, um, you had the intellectual class, which is the equivalent of the Brahmins in mm-hmm. India, and it took 20 years of training to become a Druid, but probably most Druids were born into Druid families. And, of course, now there are enough Druids in the world again that there are kids being born into Druid families, but... Um, if you're not born into a Druid family, it, you're supposed to get some training to be a Druid. But it's really the equivalent of a Brahmin in the um, Hindu structure. The uh, social structure of Hinduism, the social structure of the Celts, was pretty much identical. They both come from the Vedic uh, culture. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the Druids, the Brahmins, and then you have the warriors, and then you have the farmers and producers, and then you have the slaves and untouchables. So it's the exact same uh, social structure. And Druids today, just like Druids in the past, uh, we read voraciously. We're very intellectual. We love history. We love archaeology, ancient history. We love languages. Um, We talk about these things endlessly. (laughs) So, So not much has changed on some levels. So why would somebody want to become a druid? You got me. I don't know. It's like I heard that word, mm-hmm. and it was like something inside of me resonated. Something inside of me. Some people hear the word witch, and mm-hmm. they immediately resonate with that. I, I have not resonated with that word, but when I heard the word druid, yeah. something inside of me responded. That's the only thing I can say. It was like, um, you know, that, that still, small voice from within it, it just spoke up the minute I heard that. So what do Druids have to contribute towards present-day society? Well, we are in a time uh, when, you know, the Earth is in a lot of trouble, and we desperately need to revere nature, as we did in ancient times. Um, you know, Europeans, all of us, we mm-hmm. were tribal people, very similar to Native American tribes. Um, indigenous tribes anywhere around the world. We revered trees. We had sacred trees. We had sacred herbs. We had sacred animals. We made offerings to fire. We made offerings to water. Um, It was a nature religion. And um, we saw all of nature as sacred, and we saw the divine within all things. And so we've lost that. Our culture has lost that. And we're paying the price. Now, you said you see uh, basically your deity in, in everything. What? How many deities are there in Druidism? There are many. Um, well, there are over 400 names mm-hmm. that we have passed down to us from the ancient times um, of deities, male and female, gods and goddesses. 
But we also have the ancestors. We also have the she, who are the fairies. Um, there's many different classes of fairies. And, um, you know, I can look at a tree. A tree mm -hmm. has a spirit. Uh, if I look at a weed, a weed has a spirit. If well, I look at is, a horse... Isn't it true that anything that is alive has a spirit? Yeah, but yeah. we see the divine within all things. I mean, everything has this divine spark. Mm -hmm. which I think is a little different the way it seems like contemporary culture has lost that, um, doesn't necessarily recognize the divinity within all things. So that's what paganism is really about. But how do you, how do you relate to other people or relate to other people that there are over 400 names for a deity, that there's a spark and a deity and, and everything, it's just not alive, and... What is the significance of it in, in today's society? I understand that, you know, it's, a, it's an earth-based uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. But when you think of Druidism, you don't think of it as anything that is part of today's society. You think it's part of the past. Well, it's growing. Mm -hmm. um, paganism in general is growing, and so is Druidism, and so is witchcraft. And uh, more and more people are celebrating the solstices, the equinoxes, um, because they're recognizing that these are actual natural phenomena that are happening that that affect everybody. Well, wait a you second. Know, Hold on here. Hold on here. How can you call it a natural phenomenon when we know why the equinoxes happen? Right. It's a natural... I mean, every winter solstice mm -hmm. is coming. That's our next big yeah. holiday coming right. up. Every person on the planet is going to experience winter solstice mm -hmm. whether they think it's special or not right it's it's there for everybody you know so so we honor it we stop and honor it and um we honor the points in between which are more agricultural festivals the celtic festivals are in between the solstices and the equinoxes so um we we stop we pause we mm -hmm. honor what's going on in nature so would you say that Paganism, Druidism, and and uh, the other ancient philosophies are more geared towards the um, the growth, the crops, than it is anything else. No, I mean this. You're talking about an entire religion, you know. So it's hard to it's hard to summarize it in just a few sentences. But, um, I, you know, I would say the most important thing is just reclaiming the reverence that we had when we were ancient tribal people, and we respected nature, mm -hmm. probably, you know, partly because we were afraid of it. It was a lot harder to live. Right. You didn't know if you were going to have food or not, you know. Um, but, but we are modern people. We live in houses. We have heat. We have light. We have running water. And yet we stop and we... Thank nature. We recognize nature. All right, stand and by, Ellen. We've got to take our first break. Exxon Nation, Ellen Everett Hopman is our special guest this hour. www.elleneveretthopman.com. And we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
Welcome back from one and all. Ellen Everett Hopman is our special guest. Her website is ellenevereththopman.com. Um, I understand that um, you are a founding member of the Order of the White Oak. Can you tell us about that order? Uh, well, that was a group of us who met online mm-hmm. um, in 1996, and uh, we were talking about what is a druid. And there were about 50 of us at the time, and these were, I actually pulled together a list of the most reputable, knowledgeable Druids that I knew of in the United States and a couple in Canada. And um, we just discussed what is a Druid and what is not a Druid. We were trying to pin it down. And after a year of talking about that, we realized that we had created a training program because we had defined what you had to know to be a Druid. So um, in the winter solstice of 1996, we did an initiation ceremony. Uh, There were 12 of us uh, who did that. We self-initiated. And then we kind of took it from there. And um, if people visit the White Oak website, you Mm -hmm. can find rituals there posted and... Uh, just a lot of links, and there's a beautiful virtual shrine to the goddess Bridget where you can leave prayers, and um, we do have a, a list on Facebook that you can join if you're interested. Um, but then after that, I went on to create a teaching grove. If people are seriously interested in studying Druidism, mm-hmm. it's, it's called Tribe of the Oak, tribeoftheoak.com, and um, it takes about three years uh, for people to finish the, the study program. There's a lot of reading involved, and um, I welcome people to apply if they're interested. And we have members all over the world. So um, we have members in South Africa, right. and Canada, Europe, U.S., all over the place. All right, so if, if, if Christians look at Druidism, does that cross the line into sacrilegion? Well, what happened historically was um, when the missionaries came to mm-hmm. Europe and when they got to Ireland, uh, for example, uh, the Druids were there, and gradually the Druids and the Christian missionaries fused. They, be- they became one group called the Chaldee, and that's because the Christian missionaries were intellectuals. They were learned people. They knew how to read and write. And the Druids were the intellectuals and learned people of the tribes, and eventually the two just kind of melded together. And uh, there are lots of Christian Druids Mm -hmm. uh, in the world today, so you can be a practicing Christian and also be a Druid. But doesn't that uh, contradict each other, or how how do they live in harmony within one religious philosophy? Well, you should know that Queen Elizabeth is an initiated Druid, so Mm -hmm. is Prince Charles. Okay, and so was Winston Churchill. Okay, but and, that doesn't really answer my question. Right, but if you Google them and uh-huh. then Google Druidism, and you can see how they did it. Um, there are, uh, in, in Wales, they have these poet, poetry competitions. You know, the Gorsuds, um, those people are all Christians, and they uh-huh. become Druids, they become initiated Druids. Um, and it's it's not they regard druidism as more of a philosophy, right. just as uh, Thomas Merton, who was Catholic, became a Buddhist, mm-hmm. and he was a Catholic Buddhist, 
and he meditated, you know. You can be a Christian druid that, that would make you a Christian who revered nature, gotcha. you know, creation spirituality, that kind of thing. Now, since you're self-initiated as a druid, how does that, how does your status as a druid fare to that of a person who has been initiated through the druid ranks by other druids? I've been initiated by other groups. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was initiated by ADF um, originally. Then I became uh, Ring of the Oak or a third, mm-hmm. a third degree in the Henge of Keltria, which I also co-founded, by the way. Um, and then I went on to uh, create tri- uh, Order of White Oak with some other people, and mm-hmm. then now I've created Tribe of the Oak. I'm just one of these very crazy people who goes out and founds Druid Orders. But yes, I have been initiated by several people, um, and it's very important. I think it's important to be initiated by other people because it's important to have elders, uh, people that can look at what you're doing and, and fit, you know, hopefully see if you're crazy or not, <laughs> you know, because you don't want to initiate people that are off their rocker, right? And you want to make sure that people have training. If they're going to say they're a druid, they should at least know the history and uh, know what a druid is and, you know, have some background. Um, so, yes, I've been initiated by other people, and I've initiated a lot of people. So, ba- so basically, being a druid is what? Basically being a historian? <laughs> no. No, it's a religion. Um, is, it a rec- said, is it a recognized religion? It is, actually. Um, in Britain, it's now uh, officially recognized. Mm-hmm. You can do burials, you can do weddings um, in Britain as you know, under, they're perfectly legal. Um, here in the States, uh, we have a, a much looser um, structure. You know, somebody can be uh, a priest or a priestess or a minister under a Church of All, what is it called? Um, Universal Life Church. Yeah, which is example. a bogus operation that is just yeah, there. Yeah, but, yeah. but legally, I am actually mm. legal. I can do weddings and funerals in Massachusetts because I got that little certificate from Universal Life Church. So I am legally a minister. <laughs> That's the way it works here. Because Crazy. we don't have a state, state religion. We don't have a national religion. Well, it's not a matter of national religion. I think it's a matter of having form and structure that needs to be followed in any, any organization. You know, because how do you, how, you know, like if you go on the internet, you pay, what is it, two, three hundred bucks to become a member of this church, you get a doctorate of divinity, you can get a PhD, it doesn't mean anything legally, like it doesn't enhance your you as a person, all it says is that, you know what, I didn't need to go to seminary, I didn't need to do this, I didn't need to do that, I just paid three hundred bucks, got what uh, I needed, and away you I go. Paid, I paid ten bucks, I paid ten dollars to Universal Life Church, wow. and I have married people, legally, with that certificate that in this country that's how it works if you go to universal life church you can become a minister but um you know most people don't even do that Mm -hmm. we do hand fastings um we do our own thing you know we we might go to the city hall to get the paperwork and then we do our own ceremonies um you've written uh about being a just a minute here uh real witches of new england are, right. are witches still the same as they were in the days of the Salem witches, or are they totally changed now as society has progressed? 
Well, the Salem witches weren't witches. What were they? <laughs> uh, they were Christians. All the people that were killed in Salem were Christians. So it was a pretty horrific, silly, stupid event. Mm-hmm. It was actually the end of a long process. Uh, when the Puritans came here, they came with the mentality of persecuting witches. And what I do in the book is, um, the first third of the book, I, I talk about the history of the witch persecutions, starting in the Bronze Age. Right. And they, pro- they probably were older than that, but I didn't look at Egypt, I didn't look at Mesopotamia, I didn't look at ancient Greece, you know. I just started with the, the Bronze Age. Um, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. In the, because that's when the Old Testament was written. And so I started looking at, at the first written stuff in the Old Testament because that's what the European witch hunters were using as justification and then I, I go through all the different countries of Europe and what happened there. And 99.9% of the people that they persecuted were just plain old Christians, or they were what they called heretics. So if you were a Catholic in mm-hmm. a Protestant country, you were a heretic. If you were a Protestant in a Catholic country, you were a heretic. Um, if you were a Muslim or a Jew or a Gypsy or a homosexual or an herbalist, or a midwife, (laughs) any of those things could get you in trouble immediately. Uh, If you were an old woman who had cats, that was another one, especially in Tudor England, old women with cats were a target. Um, It's, I mean, it's, that's the first third of the book. And then the second third of the book is I talk to descendants of the Salem uh, witch trial, Mm -hmm people that are alive today who can trace their ancestry back, and I ask them questions about it. And then the last third of the book, I talk to modern witches. And I'm, I'm happy to say that the modern witches like the book. They approve. Because <laughs> so, I'm not a witch. So it was, it was quite something. A woman said to me, Ellen, when I heard that you wrote a book about witches, I was horrified you know, that a druid had written a book mm-hmm. about witches, but you did a really good job. So, Why did you, as a druid, write a book about witches? Well, I didn't intend to write a book about witches. Mm-hmm. I went to a poetry reading in my area, and um, there was a guy, a poet, named Mike Mowry, who was reading a poem about Half-Hanged Mary. She's the the witch of Hadley. Hadley is a town 17 minutes from my house. I'd never heard of her. And um, I listened to the poem, and then I just, I said, my goodness, because I was working in Hadley at the time. And she was buried five minutes away from where I work. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back after the News Exxon Nation. Our guest this hour is Ellen Everett Hoffman. Her website is ellenevereithoffman.com and we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
Next on Nation, our guest this hour is Ellen Everett Hopman. Her website is ellenevereththopman.com. Why do you think Druidism and witchcraft, Wiccans, paganism are, is, is gaining popularity in a modern society? Oh, boy, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, but one, one big reason, I think, is that people are not going to the churches as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, reasons for that. Um, I was in Ireland this summer, and I've been there before, but um, last time I was there was well over a decade ago. And at that time, you know, Ireland was thought of as the most Catholic of countries. Uh, You know, they exported most of the priests, uh, Catholic priests that we have in America and so on. When I, boy, have things changed. (laughs) First, uh, first, when the, the whole pedophile scandal happened. Mm -hmm. People were horrified and they turned their back on the church. But at the same time, um, they are very spiritual people. I'm talking about Ireland in particular. They they have this deep uh, reverence uh, for the sacred and they they love to go to the holy wells and light candles and bless people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's still going on. But because they had lost uh, their, their faith in the Catholic Church, where was that spirituality going to go? And what I saw, and it was just amazing to me, is that they're starting to look back at the old uh, Druid traditions. They're starting to have these big fire festivals again, and Druidism is really picking up. But, I mean, it, it was be- for me it was beautiful to see uh, it, the reverence that they were bringing to it. And um, I'm hoping that something really magical will come out of that. But I saw that in Ireland, of all places. Without the Internet, do you think Druidism would be as popular as it is today? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, the whole Wicca got started in the 1930s, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was long before the Internet. But it wasn't very popular, though. No, but in the 1970s, it began to be popular, and Mm -hmm. by the 1980s, it was already very popular. And and I didn't I personally didn't have internet till the nineties. Really? Wow. Well, I mean, I <laughs> I know it was the nineties because uh, I wrote my first book by hand, and um, I had to hire somebody to type it into a computer, and then I was forced kicking and screaming to <laughs> to buy a computer which I did not want, um, and now of course I I can't live without it, but. Um, I live in the woods. I did not want a computer, you know, but I gave in. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's been, paganism has been growing steadily, um, I would say, really since the 1970s. That's when it really picked up. And, um, you know, it wasn't through the Internet. It was through books. Um, pagans are very well educated. The few surveys that we've done, uh, a much higher percentage of the pagan population has bachelor's and master's degrees than the average So, person. So let, let me ask you this, because this is the second time you've made reference to uh, non, non-Christian uh, philosophies as, you know, well, 
pagans are are better uh, are better read, and now you're saying Wiccans are. Are you trying to say that just because you're not a, a Wiccan or a Druid or a pagan that you're stupid? No, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we did a survey mm-hmm. to find because we wanted to know what the main professions were right. and what these of education people had, and we found out much to our surprise because what the sociologists were saying and I don't know if they're still saying this, but they were saying that a person who's a pagan is typically a woman with no education mm-hmm. who feels desperate and turns to magic. That, that was the sociologist's definition. And so we did a survey to find out who we really were. And it was done by a magazine called Green Egg. That was a long time ago. And we were very surprised by the result. Um, it was completely the opposite. The two main professions, well, three main professions, computer programmer, teacher, and therapist, those were the main professions. Um, and, and people had a lot of education, and pagans read voraciously. That's something that, that we seem to have in common. How many, uh, how many people responded to the survey, and how was the survey vetted and, and uh, bonafide? It was a long time ago, mm-hmm. so I honestly I can't answer that. Okay. Um, I, I really can't. But, you know, you don't have to talk to that many people. You can extrapolate. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but if you get up to a certain number, you know, just a few thousand, you okay. can extrapolate from that. Um, I, I understand that you're also into herbal or herbs, and you're, you're, a, you're a herbologist, a herbalist? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay, now... Tell us about herbs and and how they how they fit into the druid, Wiccan, pagan society. Well, there are a lot of herbalists out there who are not druids, mm-hmm. pagans, and Wiccans. You know, I mean, herbalism is a profession; it's a healing profession. Um, I've I've written quite a few books now um, on herbalism, uh, but what one of the things I do, which is a little bit different than what other people do, is I like to bring in the lore for each of the herbs. So I like to bring in Irish lore, British lore, Scottish lore. Um, When I talk about a plant, you know, I talk about the healing uses, but then I also talk about the ancient historical beliefs around the plant. And that's just something that I really enjoy doing. And that's something that Druids like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They enjoy that, too. Can you give us some example of some plants and the story behind the plant and how it how it is used? Well, for example, right now everybody's talking about mistletoe because uh, the winter solstice is coming up. Yeah, Christmas, so, yeah. Yeah. So mistletoe is a very important plant. Um, in ancient times it was called all heal uh, because it healed so many things. And um, you can look up Pliny or I don't know if you say Pliny or Pliny, the ancient philosopher and historian, he wrote about the Druids gathering the mistletoe. There's a ritual. He wrote the whole ritual down. We have that ritual. Mm -hmm. The Druids dressed in white. One Druid would climb up the tree to cut down the mistletoe. Another Druid would be waiting below, dressed in white, carrying a white cloth, and the mistletoe had to drop down onto the cloth. It, Mm -hmm. It was not to touch the ground because it was a very, very sacred plant when it was found growing on oak. And lo and behold, uh, modern studies have been done. It turns out that mistletoe growing on oak 
has the most potent anti-tumor activity. So it's it's good for certain specific kinds of cancer. If people are interested, uh, anthroposophical medicine has a remedy called Iscador, which is made, it's, it's mistletoe growing on oak. And um, I have a book called The Druid's Herbal for the Sacred Earth Year, where I have a whole chapter on mistletoe and all the different ways that it can be used. But you have to use Viscum album, which is a European mistletoe. The mistletoes that grow in America, I don't know, you don't, I don't think you have mistletoe in Canada, do you? Probably I, could, I couldn't tell you. Like I just, yeah, I when I want mistletoe, I just go down to the local yeah. uh, florist and get it. Yeah, it's too cold, I think, in Canada. But um, mistletoe grows in the south here, mm-hmm. like in Texas and Arkansas, Georgia, places like that, Florida maybe. Um, <clears throat> it grows in England, but that's because the uh, the Gulf Stream warms the climate. You know, they don't. it's not quite as cold there as it is here. Um, so anyway, yeah, mistletoe, uh, very important to druids. Um, the story is that uh, if you hang it over the bed, it will give you pleasant dreams. Um, if you add it to any magical working that you're doing, it will enhance the magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it is a cancer remedy. And I think the Druids knew exactly what they were doing. I, why else would they? When, they... when they found it growing on oak, it was su- such a big deal that they would sacrifice two white oxen in thanks for finding it growing on an oak tree. And it does grow on apple, and it grows on poplar uh, and other, other trees as well, but only, they only did that when they found it growing on an oak. So is mistletoe basically um, a fungus of some sort that grows on another plant? Um, it's, it's not a fungus. Um, it's, I think the word is saprophytic. Uh, it's a saprophyte. It, 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 it's not quite a parasite. Mm-hmm. It, um, <clears throat> but it, it kind of burrows into the tree, and it, it does live on the sap of the tree. So right. if you have mistletoe growing on oak, mm-hmm. the mistletoe is actually living off of the, the sap that's, that's in the oak tree. And, and where, where's, where, does, where, does, uh, where is the most frequent place that uh, people can find uh, mistletoe growing? What plant? Well, like I said, the, the southern United States. No, no, States. I, I, I know, but which tree or which plant? Oh, oh, frequently? Yeah. Um, well, I've seen it on apple trees. Mm-hmm. That's where I've seen it. Um, when, when I went to Glastonbury in England, right. I went to a uh, campground, and there was mistletoe hanging down from this apple tree, so I pitched my tent right under the apple tree so that I could sleep under the mistletoe. Um, that's where I've seen it. All right, stand by for our final break. Exo Nation, our guest this hour is Ellen Everett Hoppen. Her website is ev- uh, ellenevretthoppen.com. And we'll both be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exo from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
ExoNation. Uh, Ellen Everett Hopman is our special guest. Her website is ellenevereddhopman.com. And before we went to the, uh, the break, you were saying, uh, you were sharing with us how you went to Glastonbury and uh, you slept under the mistletoe. And what kind of dreams did you have? I just remember being very peaceful. Oh, that's it good. Was very nice. Yeah. Getting back to Glastonbury, uh, Stonehenge. There's a connection between Stonehenge and the Druids. Has that uh, has the has the definition or the purpose of of Stonehenge ever been established? Well, the, there's a connection between Stonehenge and the modern Druids, but Stonehenge was not built by the ancient. Druids. Oh, it wasn't. No, it predates the Druids. It's a late Neolithic, mm-hmm. early Bronze Age um, structure that predates the Druids. The Druids were part of the Celtic culture, which came, well, the last phase of Stonehenge, I think, was 1600 B.C., and the Druid, uh, the Celtic Druid culture um, was roughly around 500 B.C. to 500 A.D., but it, has the has the uh, purpose of uh, Stonehenge ever been discovered? Well, I think there's a lot of theories. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody can say for sure no. because nothing was written down. But it does appear to be a calendar. Um, the winter solstice, the summer solstice, sunrise on the winter solstice, sunset on the winter solstice. You could look at it that way. Um, it's also a burial ground. The, the whole thing is a, is a huge burial ground. There really? are graves everywhere, yeah. including inside of it, all around it. You know, we, we don't really know. I mean, it's a sacred site, that much yeah. we know. It's definitely a sacred site. Part of your... And, of course, modern Druids love to go there and yeah. have big, big celebrations. Sure. Any excuse for a celebration, whether you're a Druid, a pagan, a Christian, or a Catholic, let's have a celebration That's of right. one sort or another. Um also, in your book, I understand that, that you touched on spells. So let me ask you this. Are spells real? Uh, well, a lot of people do them. Um, and uh, in the book, I talked, like I said, the last third of the book, mm-hmm. I talked to modern witches. And one of the things I asked them is, do you do spells? And if so, can you give an example? And, and each person that I interviewed, um, I believe... E- all of them gave some kind of a, an example of a, of a little spell of some kind. You know, nothing scary, no animals were sacrificed, nothing like that. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, modern druids don't do anything like that. Um, we stopped doing anything like that 2,000 years ago. So, so if there are a couple of druids out collecting mistletoe, uh, dropping it in the white, and uh, they, they wouldn't be sacrificing any, any oxen, right? Probably not. Well, that's good. Um, we had a big discussion about that when we were creating the Order of White Oak, and we said, what would be the modern equivalent of two white oxen? And what we came up with was a Lexus automobile. So if any, if any druid wants to do a big sacrifice and thanks for gathering the mistletoe, go trash a Lexus automobile, a white one. Why Lexus? That's just what we came up with. We, we, we were discussing it, you know, would it be a Volkswagen Beetle? No. <laughs> you know, somehow, somehow, Lex, you know, the, the cost of the Lexus seemed equivalent to the cost, if you were an Iron Age farmer, 
and you were sacrificing two white oxen, mm -hmm. presumably two healthy white oxen. That's a big deal. Okay. <laughs> so. I, I'm still trying to figure out the connection between Alexis and being sacrificed instead of some sort of effigy that could be well, done with paper mache. Well, it's equivalent. We were trying to come up with an equivalent. What oh, would I be see. as valuable to a modern person as those two white oxen? So I would imagine that there are no pagans that own white Lexuses. No, well, I've never heard of anybody sacrificing a Lexus. Hasn't happened as far as I know. Okay. Um, what are some of the spell, uh, spells that uh, the, the witches that you interviewed for your book came up with? Could you share one or two with us? Uh, okay, I'm walking over to my altar. I wasn't prepared for this question, so I have I have my notes here. Um, okay, so if you here's an example. Okay. Um, if you have a mortar and pestle, you know what a mortar yep. and pestle mm -hmm. is. Okay. So if you have a need or a desire, it's always good to speak in rhyme, and so you say, "Turn the wheel, set the task, bring to me the thing I ask." As you turn, as you counterclockwise turn your mortar and pestle, and you're thinking about the thing that you need, that's one. <laughs> is is there anything that you're you're grinding uh, as you're doing this, or is it just an, no, an it's, empty? No, it's the motion. It's oh, just the clockwise motion. Oh, okay. So but you know, I mean, I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about what is a spell, what is mm -hmm. magic. You know, why certain colors, certain kinds of candles, why certain herbs and all that. And I've come to, this is what I've come to, is that all these things, if you have the right time of day, the right day of the week, the right color of candle, you invoke the right deity, uh, you say your rhyme, um, you have the right herb that you're burning in front of you, all those are props so that you can focus your mind you focus your intention more strongly on the thing that you want to manifest. That's that's what I figured out. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. But unless you do something to actually, you know, it's nice to think of, 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 of something that you want, unless you actually work for it, no matter what kind of magic you use, whether it's magic voodoo or or good old-fashioned Christian pa uh, prayer, it's not going to happen. You've got to do your, your fair share to make things happen. Right, and to get your mind focused so that you have the energy to follow through on that thing, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, it, it helps. It helps to have the right colors and scents and herbs and f candles. and you know. I mean, that's what I think it is. It's really about focusing your mind. You know, and once your mind is is very focused, that it, you can be more disciplined. Well, couldn't you do that? Couldn't you do it? Just do that with meditation instead of having all these different props all over the place. Sure, you could, but then you wouldn't be a witch. Oh, so a witch uh, to be a witch, you have to get into the the flair of the props. Well, that's what witches do. That's what a lot of witches uh -huh. do. <laughs> but I mean, it all helps. You know, witches meditate also. Mm-hmm. Which is do a lot of things. Um, they take baths. 
put herbs in the bathtub. You well, know? my wife, my wife uses rose petals in in the uh, in her bath, and she's not a witch. Well, that's a love spell. That's a love spell right there. Well, that explains the six kids and twelve grandchildren. There you go. Uh huh. <laughs> and I was blaming it on Jack Daniels. I'm sorry, nope. Jack. <laughs> well, maybe that too, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, but that it's all. That's what magic is. It's creating this whole. You know, magical illusion that that ah, you, now fine. now you just said something very interesting there, the illusion, which means yeah, that magic is not real. If you no, have, if I you, don't mean illusion uh, in the sense of deceptive. I mean illusion in the sense of a vision. Well, why didn't you say vision? Why did you use illusion? Because it doesn't work in a sentence. <laughs> you can't create a magic. Well, you can. You sure, can you can. Yeah, okay, so you create a magical vision. There you go. Um, For example, I'm looking at my Christmas tree right now. Christmas trees, as you know, are pagan. That's right. That is a pagan symbol, right? it is. So what the heck is that all about? So I'm looking at my tree, Mm -hmm. and it has all these little white lights on it. Yeah. So what what the tree is telling me, I've got this green tree Mm -hmm. in the house with white lights on it. It wouldn't work with black lights. Subconscious Mm -hmm. mind that light will return, and that life will continue. Even though when I look out the window, the trees all look dead because they have no leaves. Everything looks dead. And we even have snow on the ground. So, so this tree mm-hmm. is magically invoking the return of the light, which happens at the solstice, of course, and the immortality of the evergreen. It stays green no matter what. Right. Unless it's cut down, or unless it gets a uh, disease or something, unless it's burned, yeah. Yeah, but but hmm. we bring them into the house. It reminds us that life goes on, even though it's dark outside and it's cold and it looks like everything's dead. We know it isn't, and we bring the greenery into the house, and and it's life. Unless life it's artificial, be- and you use an artificial tree that is. I, I was amazed to see some of the different colored artificial trees you can buy these days. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the pictures of the White House? <laughs> yes. That was, well... Um, Have you been to Costco lately? Huh. No. <laughs> I've, never seen, have... I've never seen a pink Christmas tree before. Ugh. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be. I agree with you 100%. Hey, listen, Ellen, you and I have to say so long for tonight. I do want to thank you ever so much okay. uh, for joining us. Continued success in everything that you do. And ExoNation, if you'd like to find out more about this uh, very interesting young lady, visit her website, ellenevertthopman.com. And I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Thank you.